there, everybody. Happy holidays and welcome to this super special extra bonus episode of the Hired Geek Podcast. This will be episode number 171. Uh, since this is really a full proper episode of the podcast, it is a live recording uh, of a session that I moderated a panel of uh, wonderful guests talking about uh, graduate student wellness that took place at the Times Higher Education Campus US Live event Uh uh, that took place in November in Los Angeles. Uh, it was a really great opportunity uh, for me to be a part of this and uh, be a moderator, something I would like to do uh, more of just to put that energy out into the universe. But uh, this was such a great uh, conversation. I want to make sure that I got it out here and kind of preserved it uh, for everyone to uh, reference back to and check out and to connect with our uh, panelists. So go check out a description of this episode, to, uh, connect with all of our guests and there is one good resource to check out as well uh, that is mentioned in here as well. Uh, that can be a great takeaway with some actionable steps for folks that want to uh, better the working conditions for graduate students on their campus. So uh, without further ado, check out this episode uh, 171 on graduate student wellness from the Times Higher Education Campus Live event. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this panel discussion focused on uh, the graduate student experience and strategies to improve uh their working conditions, their uh, wellness. So uh, we'll do quick intros and then get into the conversation. So uh, my name is Dustin Ramsdell. I'm the founder and host of the Hired Geek podcast uh, here to moderate the discussion with our uh, fine panelists here. So we'll just go down the row if everyone wants to give a brief intro. Hello, my name is Tiffany Miller. I am the vice president of the National Association of Graduate Professional Students. And I have my MHSA from the University of North Texas, currently attending the University of the People for an MBA. Um, hi everyone, my name is Gwen Coder. I am a PhD candidate, literally weeks away from being able to use that uh, doctor at the front of my name. Um, I am studying nutritional biology at UC Davis. I spent um, five years as a member of our executive council there in various roles for a graduate student association. Um, I was the president of the UC Graduate and Professional Council for two years. Um, the president of NAGPS as well as the director of social justice concerns the year before that. Um, and somehow um, during 2020, I also found the time to be on the executive board of our uh, UAW 2865, which is the union that represents um, TAs, readers, and tutors throughout the University of California system. My name is Kaylin Glover. I did finish my PhD at the University of Kentucky, um, where I was involved in the graduate student government um, in a lot of different capacities formerly Director of Legislative Affairs for the National Association of Graduate Professional Students, co-authored uh, a policy brief on graduate student life in response to information we learned from the Hill, um, co-founded, and specifically in my capacity here, co-founder of a project specifically targeted to get the federal agencies to step in when there are mentorship issues, called FARM, Framework for Accountability in Academic Research and Mentoring. And my name is Rachel Kinzel. Um, I am a PhD candidate in biochemistry and molecular biophysics at Caltech. I am the co-chair of the Caltech Graduate Student Council Advocacy Committee and the founder and co-chair of the Graduate Student Action Network, which is a national, national coalition of grad leaders and other student advocates, you know, mobilizing students to make change and advance disability justice and um, equity for gender and racial minorities. So, you know, our focus here, the title of the session kind of says it, it's a reality check. Uh, things in the graduate student space, uh, there's been room for growth and improvement, I think, for a long time. Uh, and as with many things, uh, those kind of issues and gaps were laid bare that much more uh, over the past two years. So 
you know, we'll be focusing on kind of multiple facets of that conversation, mostly focused on kind of a, you know, the on-ground research experience for uh, master's, PhD students in those uh, populations. So uh, we'll just cover as much as we can in the time that we have. But, um, and I guess we'll maybe just kind of reverse order, uh, have everyone kind of speak to the, uh, the next question of uh, why this issue of kind of the ill-defined space uh, between graduate students and staff uh, is so important just from your perspective at this moment. So one unique thing about this moment is what um, nature called the great resignation. We're seeing a lot of people leave academia and people are asking why is that happening? So I mean there's a lot of um, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons, you know, there's some financial reasons with other which others will talk about, but um, one key issue is that um, people are, you know, as people leave, they're speaking up more about the conditions that they endured. Um, they're being more open in the wake of the Me Too movement and the George Floyd protests, which raised our awareness of systemic um, racism and sexism um, uh, uh, in the Me Too movement as well. Um, people are raising awareness about abuse and discrimination and harassment um, that was endured and how um, you know, abusers are often tenured professors that aren't being held accountable. And then there's also people are speaking up about work-life balance issues and unrealistic expectations. And um, so folks are questioning whether to enter and stay because they're you know, seeing people speak up about these realities. Yeah, and I would say that it's always been important and uh, it's just been historically neglected. It's been written off as, this is just how academia works. Uh, researchers are trained in an apprenticeship model. And how I was trained is how I'm going to train, and this is just the way it is. Um, and that leads to very little oversight, very little recourses, no student rights protections on campuses. Um, and then for those who are not necessarily research bound, but are like professional track students, in that case, the universities often treat us as though we are just temporary customers who are willing to pay whatever we're going to need to pay in order to make the money to get the license to, you know, make more money later on. Um, so it's, I don't want to use the phrase cash cow, but apparently at least one of us on board have been told that by university administrators before. Yeah, and so I, I think I'm very much in agreement with um, both of the panelists who went before. These are historical issues that, that are getting more attention. And I think another place where the pandemic really crystallized this was the fact that grad students were so often left out of planning. Um, many universities, when they received her funds, didn't necessarily extend those to graduate students. Um, there, you know, I can speak to the University of California and when our first guidance is about who was allowed on campus when, um, it talked about staff, it said, you know, there were guidance for undergrads, but not so much for graduate students, and we had to stand up and say, hey, we're, what about us? We fulfill certain roles that, you know, are staff-like, but also student-like. Um, and so we exist in this very nebulous space. Um, we are, you know, again, as we, our roles change as we progress throughout a PhD. Um, and there is often a, a lot of a lack of clarity um, around what role we're functioning in in the moment. Are we a TA when our student catches us outside of our lab to ask us a question, even though we're in the middle of running an experiment that maybe is the source of our paycheck because we're a student researcher, but is really part of our dissertation and our role as a student. You know, there's just this, um, all of these roles that overlap and that we inhabit at the same time. And 
um, there wasn't necessarily consideration for the unique situations that graduate students find themselves in um, on top of all of the historic abuses and um, increased attention to what we're, we've been facing. <sighs> Sorry. Um, besides the last two years with NAGPS, I was also previously the Graduate Student Council President at University of North Texas. I was inducted in October of 2019, um, and I kind of always laughed because I didn't get to have a, a normal tenure as a GSC president. I got 2020, and then I got 2021. Um, and what I learned during that time as a master's student, um, I you know, did not have financial support. I got $1,000 a year, and they, they said, you know, this is for you, good luck, make it work. I had loans. I was not on anyone's research committee. I was not working for the university outside of my role in the student government. So I was not beholden to anyone. I was beholden to the students and had a little bit of a unique position as a master's student to represent the students and to actually have hard conversations with the faculty and staff that my predecessors who were PhD students couldn't because there was always the potential for retaliation. And the thing that I learned in that time, those two years, was that when I would walk into a student space where there were undergraduate students, they would look at me and go, what are you doing here? You're a staff member. But then I would walk into the staff and the faculty spaces and they would say, what are you doing here? You're a student. And so then I'd go home and look in the mirror and go, what the hell am I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm not supported, I know that. And that's a feeling that was echoed in my constituents and in my colleagues, in my program and without. And the weird thing about it is, the segue into not just university life, but in real life too. You know, just a quick show of hands. How many of you have ever driven on a road? Probably all of you. Have ever been to a doctor? Probably all of you at least once. And maybe seen a lawyer for something? Probably at least once in your life, or you will in the future. Congratulations, you have directly and indirectly benefited from graduate educated people, whether they're professional students, master's students, PhDs, or certificate holders, civil engineers, lawyers, doctors, these are all graduate and professional students. But when they're actually receiving their educations, before they get to the point of going on to do those things that you all benefit from, that we all benefit from, they're subjected to, as some of my colleagues on the panel have noted, abuse at the hands of faculty members, occasionally at the hands of other students, including undergraduate students, and low support. Even the PhD candidates with their tuition reimbursements and their salary, TA ships and RA ships and all of that, on average, depending on the school you look at, are receiving a lot less than people in other states. And we won't even talk about Europe. I looked it up the other day. The average TA in Europe makes $50,000 a year. I won't go down that path, though. <laughs> but it's a weird space to be in. You're not really a student, but you're not a faculty or staff member either. But you're expected to, when you go into the faculty spaces, the staff spaces, to act like a student. But when you go into the student spaces, you're given the same level of responsibility and accountability, or lack thereof on occasion, as the faculty and the staff. And that is the scope of the problem. Yeah, and I just want to say, because I know you're a little exasperated uh, as you're getting into your answer, like this is your, your all's lived experience, your perspective that you're sharing here. So I just want to thank you very much for being candid uh, about everything, because this is just, again, the reality check. Like, it's not. Yeah, just the maybe idealized notions of what uh, this is or should be or uh, anything like that. It, it is this sort of ill-defined space, I think, it will be the, the concept that we keep uh, coming back to. And I think you just set up, Tiffany, so I'll just come back to you, of just sort of 
trying to kind of dig deeper on uh, that ill-defined space, kind of provide more of the uh, tangible pieces of it. We'll go to Kaylin after this, but uh, so yeah, if you want to just explore that ill-defined space that seems to be kind of the uh, source of much of the frustration and you know issues and everything. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, everyone always wants to talk about pay. Everyone always wants to talk about funding. It's not just those things. And having those things at higher levels would certainly help, but it's also the general attitude that is given or projected onto graduate students. And, and like I think it was Kaylin mentioned earlier, I've literally heard faculty in meetings say, well, you know, when I was in graduate school, this is verbatim quoting someone from my university in one of the science departments. When I was in grad school, I had to have a little baby under my arm and do my experiments at two and three and four in the morning, and nobody took me seriously. And it's not that bad for you. So why are you, why are you complaining? This was a conversation a, a PI had with a graduate student that was sitting in front of me in the GSC office, sobbing their eyes out, asking, you know, what do I do? I'm being expected to work and this is the ill-defined space, right? Are you a faculty member? Are you a student? Your contract says you only have to work and you're only supposed to work 20 hours a week. But your PI is sitting in front of you and telling you you have to be there 40 hours a week, 8 to 5, 9 to 6. And if you're not there, there is someone waiting in line behind you that would be all too happy to have your spot. And that was a domestic student. The international students have it worse. Because by law, they're not allowed to work more than 20 hours a week. And if it is found out that they are working more than 20 hours a week, even unpaid, they can lose their visa. Am I a faculty member or am I a student? I mean, that's, that's the crux of, of, the, of the issue, in my opinion, and in my experiences with students. It's this expectation that is unattainable, and it's based on an idea that I suffered, therefore you must also suffer. And if you're, if you're suffering less than me, then I'm doing good. I'm doing a good job. And it's almost the thing where, like, you're so close because you're acknowledging that you also suffered <laughs> decades ago, but you're not being like, wait a second, maybe it shouldn't be this. Like, right so, there. Um, yeah, but I know, Caitlin, you have uh, quite a few stories and stuff, so I know, you know, given time, we can't probably tell all of them in their uh, entirety, but uh, yeah, if you just want to share, you know, about a, sort of that power balance of those things that you experienced. Yeah, and I, um, before I get to the stories, because uh, I got them, um, the power imbalances, I think, is really crucial um, because you can get into some sticky ethical situations. You have um, faculty who are like, no, you're, you're a colleague, you're a peer, we're going to co-author together, we're going to do our research together, um, you know, I, I, we're going to, you call me by my first name, I get to know your spouse, your partner, our kids might go to the same daycare, you know, we have this, this dynamic, social, casual relationship. And then you also sit in my class and I give you a grade. And then I sit on your dissertation committee and that thing that you shared with me in private might come out. That's an, an ethical problem. That is inappropriate as a dynamic in this scenario. And yet that's what we have to live in. And often, when you have these kinds of relationships, you have an HR department that can step in, or you have student rights that list what is or is not appropriate. Graduate students are often ex excluded from either of those. HR will say you're not technically considered an employee through our departments, and so there's nothing that we can do to help. 
and student rights, depending on whether or not the university has thought to bother, will or will not include anything. Um, as a result, you have this lack of boundaries that allow for behaviors to bleed over. And, the, and I think a big problem is that whenever we mention this, faculty are like, well, I would never do that. I view you as a friend. Like, we're colleagues. That's the problem. You don't experience the kind of power imbalance because you're the person in power. We're not. We're sitting here wondering how what I might accidentally say at your house, this party, to welcome new students is going to be used against me because it happens. And one of the reasons why we are so passionate about this is because there are real tangible effects of this. In case you don't know, but there is a graduate student mental health crisis. 40% of graduate students have moderate to severe anxiety or depression. These are rates two to three times higher than the undergraduate populations. 10% are suicidal. Whenever we talk about the experiences we've had on campus talking to university administrators, they tell us that the suicides that are happening are not talked about because it makes them look bad, because they're happening. Now, we can talk a little bit about my experiences. I just finished after seven years. I relocated my family across the country to work with an advisor. Uh, I found out after I'd been there, he had not graduated a PhD student in 10 years. Information that had been covered up. Um, he was abusive, controlling, domineering, um, uh, demeaning. I would get emails late at night, why aren't you working, uh, expecting me in the labs on the weekends. Um, I have, I have, still have many emails from him that all illustrated all of this. The time I came in, there were four PhD students, five. They had all left after three years. I was, or after two years, I was the only one left. The only ones who were able to stick around had co-advisors switch to a master's or switched labs. Those that he still had influence over, because in switching out of somebody's lab doesn't mean that they leave your dissertation committee he retaliated against on their committees, um, just saying the most horrible things in their defenses and so forth. Doesn't technically count as being protected under university retaliations. By the time I decided to leave, um, there, we had gotten to the point of sexual harassment. And I knew that uh, I could actually get out at that point because I had moved across the country with my son to be in this person's lab. And I, need, I like, where else would I go? Because he was also the only faculty member who did, who could have supported my research. And so I was in a very precarious situation. Luckily, I was able to find somebody to support me, which that's a different, we'll get there. Eventually went to Title IX they conducted their investigation. They said that no one should ever have to be in the kind of environment I was in, but that wasn't enough sex-based discrimination for it to count as a Title IX violation, because if you want to get into the policy aspects, DeVos was in charge at the time. Um, so luckily I was able to get in somebody else's lab and I was able to get out of his. The primary reason I filed the Title IX was because I knew that in doing so, any student who was listed who had been interviewed or was in any way involved with him or the situation 
would be protected through the Title IX office. I had been working in, you know, I have been in higher ed for 14 years at this point. So I knew that. And I wanted to make sure that the students who I knew had left and were still facing retaliation could not be full further retaliated against. So at this point, because of the stress that I had been under, because he was requiring me to work so often, I had developed multiple physical problems. I have currently widespread musculoskeletal dysfunction that results in uh, neurological and mobility issues because of the kinds of working conditions I had during my graduate program. The department did not provide for any accommodations whenever I was needing them in terms of me trying to attend different events, being on campus, doing my research. I had to spend one entire year where my lab was officially a classroom, like a class lab, because they didn't have space for me, um, which meant that I couldn't do my research at like normal times uh, or have like a place to sit. Um, whenever I tried to get disability support for me working at home, disability services was like, well, you're not, that's not actually student work you're doing, that's like research, so can't help you. So I was denied disability access for the things I need. Luckily, they were able to take me to and from campus because I lived on campus. So to get to my various doctor's appointments, which were also on campus, I was able to get that, but not all of them. So those I had to negotiate. So my new advisor um, was willing to take me on, but he never read any of my work until one week before I had to turn in my dissertation to my committee thus got no feedback on it. My committee all had to change. So this gets into some of those, what is going on with like official people serving on a dissertation committee? Exams are like protected under students. There are requirements. Not always the case for dissertations. My entire dissertation committee had to change after my proposal and I was already doing research due to their own changes at the university. As a result, I had several of them who did not know what my research was on, thought I knew different content, so I had to stick around an extra year and a half to learn that content. So that was fun. Um, whenever I told other graduate students in my department that this was a thing that is currently happening, my department chair in DGS retaliated against me and started a smear campaign. That was fun. Um, I go to the ombud to try to get some degree of protections. We go through the universities, like student rights, what they can protect, nothing in there about graduate students. All exams, all homework, all those kind of responses, nothing about dissertations, defenses, theses, proposals, anything. When we say that these are real and tangible issues, we mean it. I started doing graduate student advocacy before these issues happened. And throughout my entire experience, I continued to hear these things from others. I was the one who could say something, though. No one should get disabled from getting a graduate degree. Thank you for sharing your story, because I think it really does capture that ill-defined space and then sort of the negative impacts that come of it. And I think throughout that story, obviously you shouldn't have had to endure what you endured, but one big aspect of it is, you know, because we've acknowledged, I think, the uh, financial aspects of this issue where certainly graduate students should get paid more, but then there's also like, you know, you needed transportation, you needed healthcare, you needed 
you know, perhaps childcare, all these aspects of uh, financial burdens that, uh, you know, oftentimes, again, are, are overlooked or, um, you know, there are resources that are available to uh, staff or undergraduate students, but not uh, explicitly graduate students. So uh, we'll spend a brief moment on the financial issues and how they impact uh, graduate students specifically. So uh, we'll start with you on this one, Gwen, and then we'll go to Rachel. Yeah, um, so in addition to um, my advocacy roles and, and leadership roles, I've been very involved with basic needs work um, both on my campus and, and within the community. Um, and the UC um, was one of the first to talk about undergrad student food insecurity. Um, it was about 45% in 2016. So roughly half of the undergraduate students were food insecure. Um, and this number got a lot of attention. Um, other institutions really started talking about it then. Um, and you find pretty consistent numbers elsewhere. Um, but one thing that gets lost in that same report was that 25% of graduate students were also food insecure. Um, and that isn't, um, you know, in, no, it's not as bad as, as undergrads, but it is still almost twice the general population. Um, and there are very unique challenges towards um, being a graduate student. So again, for most of us, our advisors are our source of funding. They're the ones who pay us. Um, they're the ones who give us a job, who if they don't have research funds to have somebody as an assistantship for a semester, you know, oh, well, you can TA for me, and then you're covered. Um, so you're highly dependent not only on your advisor for your own progression as a student, but also for your financial well-being. Um, additionally, there are a lot of, of setups um, within institutions that really also challenge grad students. Um, you get treated almost as colleagues. Hey, we should go and present at this conference. Um, but it's a very different reality to have to wait on a reimbursement when you are only making $2,000 a month and are spending more than 50% of that on your rent, um, which is the case for many grad students. The average grad student in the US makes about $21,000 a year, um, which is only just above the poverty line in most places. Um, and then depending on the program is in, there's, you know, there's variability in that. Um, but to have to put out money from your own pocket to go to a conference that your advisor wants you to do because you're friends and it's important for your networking and for your development and for your progression, um, that puts a huge financial burden on students. Um, there are also issues, of course, with things like pay cycles, um, needing to have some of the other fees and, and costs that are associated with you know, just performing some of the things that you do as a grad student. Um, needing to have certain types of, um, so I, I do bioclinical research for the most part for my dissertation. And because I see study subjects in that context as, as a healthcare professional, um, I also need to carry liability insurance. My university doesn't cover that. I have to pay for that. Even though it's a necessary thing for me to do as part of my job or as part of the job that I've been hired for by the university. That's not funded into the budget. That's not baked in. Um, and so these are, are just some of, of the general challenges, um, specifically in, in meeting some of them, though, it's, it's also really challenging for grad students. So um, we ended up starting a graduate student pantry on our campus because we knew that even though we heard from our grad students that even though they were struggling and they could benefit from it, they didn't feel comfortable going to the undergraduate student pantry because they might see their students and then have to go to class and teach that student and stand in front of that student having just seen them in the pantry. And they felt like shame because of that. Um, and that's 
not how it should be. I mean, you can't do your best work if you're hungry. You can't do your best work if you're worrying about how you're going to pay your rent that month. You are, you know, if you are waiting on a reimbursement, why has it taken three months for me to get a reimbursement for this flight? You know, that's time that takes away from supposedly the only 20 hours that you're supposed to be working. Um, and then, of course, there are some of the other, you know, expectations that are put on students or students in leadership. Um, I would, when I was the, the president of our system-wide graduate student um, organization, I would routinely get calls from career staff um, well after working hours, um, including once at 10.30 at night on a Thursday. Um, and just the expectation was I was going to answer, I was going to be available, and I was going to be there. Um, we get asked to do things a lot for our advisors that are not paid for or covered. We're friends, so you'll cover my class for me. You, you can give that lecture. It's great experience. It's great exposure, but there's no pay for the hours that you put into that. They're Digging through trash once. That was fun. Yeah. Um, and so that's just that's just for general grad students. And I think, ooh, sorry. And then I think Rachel can speak a little bit to some of the you know, experience of some of our marginalized populations as well who have even more challenges. Yeah, um, just briefly, one of the additional consequences of not paying graduate students enough is that, um, is the diversity problem, right? So, you know, universities are being more vocal about wanting to recruit and retain um, students from marginalized backgrounds and more women and minoritized genders. Um, but the problem is the only people who can survive on a graduate student stipend are folks who are getting extra support from their parents or from their spouses and um, or who are non-disabled and don't have medical debt. Um, and so if, you know, if, if universities really want to do a better job at recruiting um, a diverse student population and really, you know, recruiting the top talent from, um, from this country and beyond, um, they need to uh, pay students more and also provide um, financial support, extra needs-based support for um, students from low-income backgrounds um, and, and disabled students and, and student parents, right? So yeah, one more, I guess, brief thing is like it's very, very expensive to be a parent. You really can't be a parent and a student at the same time. And this is making a lot of people, and especially women, choose to leave academia. If you want more women to you know, be postdocs and, and become professors, you have to make it financially possible to be a parent and a student. Yeah. Yeah. So much, I, just, I feel like so much of this stuff, too, is like, you know, any of those like other duties where it's just like, you don't pay me enough for this. Like, I kept like ringing in my head where it's just like, you're asking me to do what? You don't pay me enough for this. You, don't, you barely pay me at all. Um, but, and the other thing too, that I think just to have it kind of connecting with dots in people's heads, it's like a lot of these, you know, things that institutions aren't willing or able to put up the funding to create childcare opportunities or, uh, you know, healthcare or these various kind of things. I think for public institutions, at least, you know, there's just been so much of a dwindling of state support for higher education. And it's like, if they had more money, this would probably be some of the stuff that they could spend it on is like covering that insurance, covering, you know, for somebody to get transportation, get childcare. So I think, you know, this is just one more manifestation of sort of the, the casualties of sort of the, the lack of uh, investment in higher education as that public good, you know, it's just going to come up in so many different ways. But Yeah. And I mean, to, to tie all of that together, another group that is really disadvantaged by our current system is, is international students. And um, international students are, are rarely 
um, eligible for certain types of aid. Um, their visa is really dependent on their student status, and so, you know, if they do if they do find themselves in a poor advising situation, it's even more difficult for them to switch and make a change because they, you know, are dependent on remaining a student to stay in the country because of the way their visa systems work. Um, additionally, you know, this was something else that we found really challenging during the pandemic is that um, international student and out-of-state student fees at public institutions aren't typically covered in tuition remission costs. And so we found ourselves in a situation at UC where we have all of these students who ended up adding a year to their graduation or to their degree timeline or, or things like that um, through no fault of their own because we're in a global pandemic and everything is shut down. Um, and then they come back and, you know, everybody's really excited and, and willing to get back to work. Um, but then, you know, to hear, well, you didn't meet the benchmarks and the timelines, so you have to pay these out-of-state fees now. Um, that'll be $15,000. And yes, we know that you're TAing, you know, 50 hours a week and, or I'm sorry, yeah, 50%, which is 20 hours a week, and you make $24,000 a year, but, you know, you're good. Like, this is what you need to do to finish. Um, and there just isn't support and recognition for, for what, um, for the challenges that things face. And I, I know that Tiffany said this and, and Kaylin said this as well, that there's this idea that people are just in line to take positions that PhD student has. And in many fields, that's just not necessarily true. There might be a lot of applicants, um, but when we're talking about PhD students and master's students and professional students, we're talking about people with really highly specialized skill sets in, in many ways, that there are probably only a few people in the world who have the technical expertise to do some of these things. Um, I know, you know, I'm finishing, my advisor is paying me to stick around for an extra six months because some of the techniques that I have brought into our lab, I'm the only person who does them. Um, so getting all of the other students up and running with them you know, is, is extra work that I'm going to take on. And thankfully, she's in a position to pay me, but there are lots of people who don't get that. So this idea that, you know, we're replaceable or that, you know, the, some of the xenophobic comments that international students have to deal with, like, oh, you're, you're taking a spot from an American student, that's just not true. And we really need to value this population more um, and support them more because they deserve it. And they're, yeah, doing very important work that they're very well qualified for. So that's a, another soapbox that I've been. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's... <laughs> we have several. Uh, yeah, it's uh, sort of the, the vibe for this uh, reality check. Um, but yeah, and I think something else that just makes me think of too, that it's probably very uh, interconnected to this issue since like uh, graduate students often are, you know, teaching classes and all that kind of stuff as, uh, you know, adjunct instructors and just across the board how much institutions rely on this labor and uh, kind of, you know, essentially kind of a race to the bottom in terms of just sort of like, you know, how little can we pay as many people as possible to do all the teaching and, you know, this or that of the institution. And I think, uh, you know, certainly thanks to the work that you all are doing, you know, and others, I think finally kind of there being a bit of a, uh, a reckoning for this. And I think you all uh, also have a good perspective on, you know, trying to take kind of the optimistic point of view on this of kind of strategies that can be implemented uh, to improve, uh, you know, this kind of, issue here. So um, I think we'll just go down uh, from Tiffany down uh, through the rest of the panel here of specific strategies 
that institutions can implement to create these healthier working environments, you know, to address this uh, ill-defined space problem. One of the things that I did enjoy during my time at UNT um, was the level of involvement I was allotted on, you know, faculty search committees. And when they were hiring on a university president my freshman year, I know for a fact they had the SGA and GSC presidents for the undergraduate and graduate students on that committee helping interview the president's uh, presidential candidates. So one of the things I've always advocated for is, you know, within reason, include students on these important committees in these meetings. If you're going to have a meeting <laughs> about students <laughs> or about something that's going to impact students, it kind of makes sense to have a student there. And not just so you can say, well, you know, we had a student in the room. Uh, so sorry y'all didn't like the results of XYZ, but we did have a student representative there. If you're doing it to have them there so that you can have a witness to a decision you made, you're, that's not it. That ain't it. That's not the vibe. Um, you need to have them there, include them, and listen to them. I point blank end of story. And I guess sort of my little closing statement with that is, is, is this. When I was 15, my mother was arrested and sent to a federal prison. And I was, in the great state of Texas, a ward of the state until I was 18. I did not have a home during that period. My university was my home. So I did my undergrad. I did my grad degree. I know it's tough on the faculty, staff, and administrator side to hear someone poke holes in the things that you're doing. Because on that end, you're seeing all the good things you're doing. And you're going, but I'm trying so hard, and I'm working, and I'm putting an effort and investing to try to make things better for students. All you're doing is complaining. It's not it. For me and a lot of the students at my university, if I came home today, and my door was ajar, and my windows were broken, and there were shingles missing from the roof, I would do something to fix it. Because that's my home. And I take pride in my home, and I want it to be in the best possible condition because of the good parts, because of the crown molding and the lovely wood floors, you, you get the analogy. So when you hear people like us that are putting themselves out there, or students that are putting themselves out there in front of you and saying, you need to do better, it's because they care. So that is my advice. Invite them into the space, the pertinent, the pertinent negative in the medical field, I'm, I'm a healthcare administrator, is the thing that isn't happening and there's a reason why. If you're going into these spaces in these meetings and there's not students there, there's a reason why you need to get them in there. They need to be part of the conversation because any results that come out of that conversation are meaningless without them. You do not have a university if you don't have students. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. I didn't cry this time. <laughs> we got close, but it didn't happen. No. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. You know, we raise these things. Um, you know, the, the my graduate experience has been very challenging, but I say, you know, I am doing this because I, I care enough to do it and I'm able to do it, and I'm very thankful for, for the ability to do it. Um, but I think one thing that the universities can and should do is, is first of all, recognize the value of, of the labor of, of students. And I no, this is very topical um, given the week, uh, given what is happening at my institution. But um, 
if your students are unionizing and they're making demands, instead of saying, no, there's no room for that in the budget, or no, that's not a worker issue, um, maybe it's a better solution to come to the table, not maybe, I'm not gonna couch this, it's a better solution to come to the table and say, let's talk about creative ways to address this. How can we go to the state together and ask for more funds? How can we rethink this? Like, we are very smart, we are very intelligent, we are very passionate people with a lot of creativity, and so we are looking for solutions. We want to help you find solutions. We will come at you and complain about everything that is wrong. We will let you know when things are not working the way that they're supposed to, when people who you know are have been systematically disadvantaged are continuing to be taken advantage of in the system. Um, but you need to work with us, and we have a lot to offer in that space. So recognizing your, you know, recognizing graduate students as employees with a high degree of value, um, especially relative to our pay. Um, we bring a lot of added value to these conversations, but recognizing um, our rights and, and our right to demand that there are better working conditions for us, because this is a job. This is a full-time job. I mentioned that one of the projects I helped found was FARM, Framework for Accountability in Academic Research and Mentoring. One of the publications we have is a one-pager on immediate needs at research institutions. There are three things on that list, all of which we have identified as being relatively easy to implement, or a semester or less, and at low cost. They are advisor flexibility inherent to your program's structure. Any student who comes in needs to be able to switch advisors if they need to, without having to change their entire lives. Okay, that needs to be a genuine practical ability. Number two, Mentorship approval process external to professorship. External body in a different department, somebody in the graduate school, there needs to be some sort of training that says, hey, just because you can do research doesn't mean you can teach other people. You, you should have authority over these students. Okay, complete and utter authority. Um, that means training in things like management, conflict resolution, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and belonging. Veto power. Somebody needs to be able to come in and say, that person has not been following university metrics. They haven't attended this training. For the next six months, their students need to be under someone else. Something like that. The third one is the adoption of mutually uh, agreed upon, mutually developed, and academically binding mentorship agreements. Things that are unique to each student advisor relationship. When they come in, they work out, okay, these are the things that um, I, as your advisor, can provide you. These are things you, as my research trainee, are going to do in the lab. These are, I'm not going to email you after this time or don't expect to get this within this time. And that can be updated regularly. Um, and violations can fill in gaps where there's student rights violations and so forth. But those three things can be implemented relatively quickly and can dramatically improve the conditions of your students on campus. Um, I want to add some suggestions for how universities can improve the diversity of their programs and um, recruit and retain more students from minoritized backgrounds um, and uh, historically underrepresented groups. 
as I mentioned before, there have to be financial systems in place to support students to succeed who don't have extra financial support from their parents or from um, a spouse. So that means need-based um, extra stipends for low-income or disabled students and childcare subsidies and reasonable parental leave policies um, for student parents. In addition to that, one of the big reasons that um, women and racial minorities are not graduating <laughs> Uh, or are going from their postdoc to industry is because of systemic sexism and racism. Um, and so there has to be a, a, a system of accountability put into place, um, like third-party groups to investigate um, tenured professors and hold them accountable. Um, Title IX isn't cutting it. Most of the my women grad student friends have filed complaints with Title IX that have not go gone anywhere for harassment and discrimination, including myself. Um, this is something that almost all graduate student women face. And um, you're going to keep losing women, and you're going to keep losing racial minorities unless you start holding people accountable. So we are coming up on time, but we um, wanted to have one final question, uh, question that I put to the panel. Uh, one final thought, call to action, takeaway. If you want to just be super short, concise, clear to the point, um, any final thoughts from our panelists here as we uh, conclude the panel? Start with you, Tiffany, and go down. We've all shared such incredible thoughts already, but just wanted to make sure to leave that window open as we uh, wrap up here. I can't say it better than the anecdote of uh, listen to listen, not just to hear, not just to respond. Um, recognize how much your graduate and professional students have to offer the institution, both in terms of their expertise, but also their creativity. Your ability to earn a graduate degree should not depend on how much abuse you're willing to tolerate. Um, and I, I think you all covered it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, I think accountability including graduate students in the process and uh, yeah, not looking at this as some sort of like hazing. I think so many things are like that in society and we can all play a part in breaking that cycle. And again, I appreciate you all for sharing your stories, taking time uh, to talk about everything and the, the hard work that you all do every day to advocate for graduate students. And uh, thanks to everybody for hanging out and uh, being a part of our session here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek podcast.